The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we explore the magic of music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and relive your favorite movies through music. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Let's have a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we play today. Recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. He's been a composer in film and TV for over 35 years. Examples of his credits include Get Hard, Midnight Special, Girl Trip, several Tyler Perry films, uh, the TV show Preacher, and uh, recent films such as Highwaymen and Last Laugh, uh, and the soon-to-be-released Heart Baby. He's worked with many established composers, uh, such as one of our past guests, George Clinton, and uh, written concert works are uh, performed around the world. Uh, I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Jay Weagle to our uh, program today. Hi, Jay. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Did I pronounce your last name right? Actually, I go by Weigel, but I, Weigel. I've gotten so used to, uh, I, don't even, I don't even catch it. <laughs> so don't, please don't worry about it. I go okay, by well, I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, I'm, I'm just going to call you Jay from now on anyway. So, okay, fair, fair enough. Uh, listen, we appreciate you joining us today on the program. I, I usually start off with our guests to just um, help us understand a little bit about you and, and your background. So if you could maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, growing up, family, things of that nature. Sure, sure, sure. I um, I grew up in um, and still have moved back to New Orleans. Um, mm -hmm. Like so many people who grow up here, we end up back here. Um, and I grew up, you know, uh, someone my age. Uh, grew up when all schools had bands in them and band programs, and mm -hmm. I wanted to join mine in first grade. So I spent four or five years playing drums in the band, and then I changed schools, met a guitar player and a drummer. So I told my dad, you have to buy me a bass now because we're going to have a <laughs> rock band. So he bought me a Kingston bass out of the Sears catalog. Wow. Uh, we did things back then. And uh, I started playing you know, popular music, and then by high school was playing jazz as a bass player. And then I got interested in um, orchestration, and I had heard that word, didn't know what the heck it was. And I had heard, actually, on an album, one of my favorite progressive rock bands was Yes, and they had a live album, and they used to open their show with this piece of classical music. And when, they, when the final chord of the piece hit, Rick Wakeman, the keyboard player, would play it on his um, string machine, it sounded like strings, and he would modulate it and take it into their song. And one day I... I discovered that was a piece by Igor Stravinsky called hmm. the, the Finale of the Firebird Suite. So I went and bought a, a record uh, at the record store of that piece and learned about two other pieces. And once I heard a piece called The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, uh. I was hooked and said, oh, my gosh, 
this is what I want to do. Yeah. So I, um, I ended up in college studying music and math and then off to graduate school at USC and got a master's degree in composition and started my career as a composer, writing concert music and ultimately television and film music, moving back here and starting companies and along the way ran the Contemporary Art Center. So I've been in arts administration, teaching at colleges, universities, you know, music, film scoring and music theory and orchestration. So like many composers, mm. very zigzaggy career, but all centered around writing and creating and learning about music. All right. It, well, it's also the type of work, too, I suspect, that there's there's lulls. It's not something, with the exception of some of the real heavyweights, it's not something you're doing constantly all year round, so you've got to do something outside of the film and TV world, to, if nothing else, just to stay busy. Well, you know, I have to say that um, <laughs> I have been very fortunate. Um, one of the reasons I did so many things early in my life, uh, like um, arts administration and put on concerts and things, was my mentor... Uh, as a composer named Roger Dickerson here in New Orleans. And uh, he taught Terrence Blanchard. I've worked for Terrence for years as an orchestrator and used to travel with him and record. So I've worked with a lot of people for the joy of it, but also because Roger taught me when I was in college that it was critical that a, what he said to me was, if a composer shows the culture why he is needed, that culture will support the composer. So I always thought it was really important to do work in, in the community and to work um, teaching, et cetera, and help other younger people find their way. But along that journey, as I've kind of moved into just, again, being the selfish composer, um, uh, although I still teach and have interns and things, um, I, I just stay as busy. I'm signed on to three films right now and just finished bunch of arrangements and recordings with PJ Morton, who's an amazing uh, keyboardist singer. He plays with Maroon 5, and he's got a solo career going that's super hot, won a Grammy last year. So I've been very fortunate to be out of Los Angeles and still able to stay busy, too busy writing music all the time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm one of the lucky ones, I, I, yeah. I feel. And I, I want to revisit that a little bit later on in the show, too, what you were just talking about. What... What what sparked your interest in particular in film music? Is there a moment when you where you kind of said, ah, I mean, you've kind of talked about your interest in orchestration and 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 connecting with with more classical music, but was there was there an event or something that happened that kind of said, okay, film music's where I need to go? Well, um, I would say that the moment I walked in the movie theater and, uh, I, and saw Back to the Future and heard Alan Silvestri's music, I, I thought, oh my God. And I think one of the reasons I, it connected with me so strongly was um, you know, having similar backgrounds. When that generation of composers that was closer in age to me, I mean, we always, you know, John Williams was sort of an icon no matter what, I mean, right. my goodness. That, that, that went back to when I was studying music. <clears throat> Uh, Alan Silvestri was someone that was coming more from my era. And so when you begin to hear in subtle ways, and not so subtle if you're in it, uh, in music, but you begin to hear those those cultural and musical vocabulary influences that come from you and from your generation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that it wasn't about, although we do this, it wasn't about big band sound or that kind of classic 
uh, you know, late romanticism that that was brought into the film world early on through the composers who came over here from Europe. Right. But it was about all of that plus, you know, um, our music. When we chatted earlier, another one, of course, was uh, John Barry and the James Bond music. I mean, that mm -hmm. was, again, something that all of a sudden you were hearing guitars and not just hearing guitars, but guitars playing things you would play in your rock band. You know, and that yeah. was a very different experience. And so when I heard that, mm -hmm. I was like, uh, this is this is unbelievably uh, this is unbelievable. You could do more in my opinion for me, the kind of exploration of music I wanted to do. I felt like I could do more in many ways writing film music where the boundaries were sort of down. It wasn't about prove how brilliant you are, yeah. or prove how this you are. Mm -hmm. You could just do whatever was needed. And no one would sit there and go, you can't put a accordion in that orchestra. Well, why not? <laughs> well, in the concert world at that time, you, you wouldn't do those things. You know, we sure. were just starting to get there, you know. So I, I would say if I had to point to one moment uh, beyond the brilliance of John Williams, we all knew it was Alan Silvestri, who remains the one man I've committed myself to meeting one day and shaking his hand that I haven't had the opportunity to meet because I just love his stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, it's hopefully we can hopefully that'll happen one day. I would I'd like to be there for that too because I'm actually a, a big fan of his as well. Yeah. Speaking of which, one of the cues that you chose and it's a good great segue to it is the main title from Back to the Future. So you you've already kind of told us a little bit of the background about why that uh, is a one of your favorites. So let's uh, let the music do the talking for itself and uh, sit back and relax and listen to the main title from Back to the Future. Written by Alan Silvestri.
what was your first major gig writing for a, a you know a, a pretty big big title film or TV show? Do you remember what was like the first one that kind of made you feel like, hey, I've made it? Well, um, yeah, the, er, the because I had moved back here, the early part of my career um, was primarily doing um, commercials and infomercials and documentary. And back th- back in the eighties. And 90s, those projects had budgets, so you were able to actually do some remarkable things. And so along the way, um, they began to um, shoot some television things down here. I'm going back to the 90s before all these tax incentives and things. Right. And I would say the one that I remember where I felt differently, like, wow, was um, it was for for Turner. I can't remember. It's TBS or I get all those T's (laughs) confused in my mind. But they had, they had, John Goodman had done that film um, about Yui Long. What was his nickname? Oh, uh, um, that Kingfish. Film? Kingfish. And uh, I didn't score the film, but what happened, oh, the, it was a TV film, if I remember, a TV thing. Um, but they came and did a making of the Kingfish. Mm-hmm. And I re- I, my memory is, smart people, like so many of these ones, they came to New Orleans and they hired my company. My partner was... Uh, an editor. We had bought the 41st Abbott ever made. We were real early in getting into nonlinear editing. Mm-hmm. So they had hired him to edit the um, television 30-minute, uh, you know, the making of the Kingfish. Right. And they had hired me to score it, to put music to it. Huh. And I remember thinking, because I was writing music for outtakes and for backgrounds to John Goodman on the camera, you know. So for mm-hmm. me, that was like, wow. This felt so different. It wasn't John Goodman promoting New Orleans. I did a lot of music for tourism here. Right. Um, and so they would get people like that to talk on behalf of coming here, but to actually have him acting. And so that was probably that first moment. Um, my first film was a film called um, St. Tammany Miracle, having some, nothing to do with St. Tammany Parish here in huh. Louisiana. But it was about a girl's high school, St. Tammany High, I guess it was, and um, uh, about a the minister that ran it, and he had recruited in this new female basketball coach who he ultimately fell in love with. And I remember Mark Paul Gouslier was in it from uh, Saved by the Bell. He was an adult by then mm-hmm. uh, in it, and um, that was the first feature film I ever scored. Uh, was um, St. Tammany Miracle back in the, the 90s, mid-90s, somewhere. Okay. So there were little things like that popping up in a lot of documentaries. It was the, the long-format stuff that I was mostly doing in the 90s was um, documentaries, which were really fun to do. Okay. Well, and like most people in this industry, it, was a, it wasn't a, a overnight success kind of a thing. It was, it was it built over time organically, and so it's not, not surprising. It's interesting. Your second one that you chose is also a, a Silvestri piece uh, from the movie Contact. Uh, awful uh, Waste of Space is the cue you're talking about here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your reasoning behind uh, choosing that one. Well, um, <clears throat> again, you have to go back to my... Um, second passion in life which was astrophysics um and that came about simply i shouldn't say simply i mean i was a math guy and i love math i was a music mm-hmm. math major in undergrad school so i i always enjoyed math but um i i'm that era where when i was i guess in high school and early college carl sagan hit the pop culture world you know and right. stay up and watch johnny carson and hear this brilliant dude 
talking about space in a way um, that absolutely sucked me in. I'd read everything. I've read everything ever written or put out by him. I used to read him, read him in Parade Magazine on Sunday. Oh, wow. Right in Parade Magazine. Yeah. I, um, and, of course, his one fiction book, Contact, was a book I had read and absolutely adored. So when they finally made a movie of that uh, book, um, I, of course, saw it. I think I saw it four days in a row, twice a day. Oh, I loved geez. it that much. Well, it was just, well, for one, uh, the first time I went was to see the treatment, which he had sure. amazingly adapted. And he had just passed away when it came out. It was very, oh, he was alive yeah. when they were shooting all or most of it. And then it passed away. And as an aside, the saddest moment when I had it, the, the second time I saw it was at the very end of the movie, the words for Carl come up. Mm. It's a dedication to him. And I'll never forget the people behind me. Someone said, who's Carl? And I just thought, oh, my God. <laughs> but back to it, the, the, the second and third and fourth time, it was, it was not only the story but the score. I just thought the way Alan had captured the sense of awe, mystery, enlightenment, damn near for a character that is agnostic or atheist, depending on how you want to look at her. Right. Um, uh, I, I, I have not heard ever read a book or heard music that so perfectly captures uh, a metaphysical spiritual sense out of an agnostic as the music he had written for that and so i just had to keep going back because back then it wasn't so easy to just get sheet music or get you know you didn't have the internet to jump on and say oh let me hear this again right you, know, you went to the movie again at least i did and so um I just felt, uh, again, it had just cemented my admiration for, uh, for Alan Silvestri and his ability to capture magic on film, okay. yeah, music. Well, let's, uh, let's listen to this uh, cue then from the movie Contact. Uh, the cue is called Awful Waste of Space, written by Alan Silvestri. Thank you. 
You brought this up earlier, uh, moving back to New Orleans has, and I think you kind of answered this question, but but be curious if you could expand on it. Uh, has, has being based in New Orleans been a disadvantage or, or I guess based on what you're telling me, it, it may have been a little bit of a problem early on, but now these days, not so much of a disadvantage. Just kind of talk to me about that. Well, sure. I, you know, in, in the broadest context, um, you know, I never viewed myself as a film composer or a classical composer or a rock guy. I just viewed myself as a composer. Mm-hmm. And so moving back to New Orleans was motivated by, quite honestly, by the fact that I had grown up here, played music here, but never really, again, we're talking about the 60s and 70s here. I had never really um, absorbed the music of the African-American community and to the depth that I learned actually in graduate school where they never let you talk about that stuff. I learned how important it was for me to come back here as a composer and learn what brass bands were doing, how gospel music worked better, uh, you know, and, and just study the music of New Orleans. I had not mm-hmm. done that. And the piano style, you know, was not something I knew, like, like my friends here, you know, who play it do. So my motivation for coming back was that. So when Lionsgate began coming here on a more regular basis and uh, shooting films and looking for music to some degree, I was introduced to the head of music at Lionsgate. And by then I had worked with Terrence Blanchard for two or three years as, as his orchestrator and would help conduct when he would get tired on a cue or something. Mm-hmm. So I had a little bit of a, as I always say, I had a stamp on my forehead that said, he knows what he's doing because somebody hired him once. <laughs> you know how the, the industry works very much on a word of mouth kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So um, the fellow at Lionsgate, Joel C. High, uh, took an interest, liked what I did, liked my knowledge, and we started. He started calling me to help coordinate things and then write music for him, and then record music for him, and then he started putting me up for films, and then other people at Warner Brothers and Universal and Lionsgate and um, other independent supervisors who were going to work in New Orleans. By now, we're talking the two thousands, mid you know mid right mid-2000s. when things started what, what cooking here. Yeah, cooking. They say, well, Joel, you're down there. Who do you work with? And so on one level, I kind of became the guy in New Orleans, the composer down here. And mm-hmm. so I, I, besides the music I write, I, I just, I spend, I do a lot of helping productions. Um, I produce music for them. If they, they want some on camera and they want a band here to do it, they'll hire me sometimes to produce that, that music. And then they'll hire me to help on set and contract them in the union so I can do all the contracting if they need it. So it's a very horizontal career as well, centered, again, everything centered around music and writing and producing it. And it just really, um, I was in a right place, as I believe all of us are. We're always where we need to be. I just, I, I recognized where I was and, and used what work. there was to do it. And so it yeah. worked out great. It's worked out wonderfully. Yeah. You chose uh, an interesting cue when I listened to it, uh, a film called Planet of the Apes, the original, back in 1968, and the main title from that, written by one of my favorite composers, Jerry Goldsmith. But it struck me as kind of an unusual piece for Goldsmith and his style. Tell me a little bit about uh, choosing that as one of your favorites. Yeah, well, um, first off, that was a movie, I I guess, what is that, like 68 or 69? Yeah, so I was like nine years old. And my sister and her friend, uh, my parents made them take me and my uh, 
can't remember if it was my brother or not. Me, maybe I was alone. Me to see that movie when she went. Because that's mm-hmm. back when movie theaters were sold out for movies like that. So you're right. sitting in a pack. Well, of course, they were much smaller, too, back then. They were neighborhood theaters, you know, sure. back then. There were three within ten blocks of my house when I was a kid uh, that you could walk to, you know, and buy some Milk Duds. You could buy a Milk Duds, Raisinets for popcorn. That's what I remember. I like three things. Um, and watch a movie. But she took me to that movie. And like everyone, I was absolutely floored, stunned, and blown away with the movie. So the movie itself made such a strong impact. Mm-hmm. I was too young to really understand the vocabulary of that music. I mean, it's very experimental vocabulary, right? Prepared, you know, piano that has things screwed into the strings so it sounds clunky. It, it doesn't ring like a piano. It doesn't even sound like a piano. Percussion doing unusual rhythms. But as I, within within a handful of years of that time, and began learning classical music, contemporary classical music, contemporary composers in the classical realm, that was a vocabulary vocabulary that was coming, and it, I loved it. I just loved that score when I was nine, didn't understand it like I do mm-hmm. now. And uh, once I became old enough and was in music school and studying uh, contemporary composers like John Cage and the guys like that that were doing very experimental things with sound, I, I realized how brilliant that score was that, that Jerry Goldsmith had brought to the massive amount of people that go to movies, a sound of music that they would have otherwise never hear because it's just too weird. You wouldn't hear <laughs> They would play a piece like that in a concert and people would get and walk out, you know, but in the movie they loved it. Yeah, so it became yeah. very influential on that level where again, it, it, it impressed upon me that in film, you have an opportunity to use whatever sound palette works for the scene, and nobody judges it this way or that way. It just works or it doesn't work. And yeah. it can be so, as crazy as you want it to be, or as yeah. straight in the box as it needs to be. Yeah, so let's have a listen to this. This is the main title from the, the 1968 film, the, the, the original uh, Planet of the Apes, written by Jerry Goldsmith. Thank you. 
I think I know the answer to this already, but I'm assuming that, um, well, let me ask it this way. One of the things I've learned uh, that amazed me was that uh, most film scores, when they're recorded, there's very little rehearsal because the the musicians that are used, and this is primarily L.A. and London and and New York, where they primarily are done a lot of times, or at least have been historically, they're such good sight readers, they don't need a lot of rehearsal. Now, I'm curious, I'm assuming that you use probably mostly local musicians in your work recording here uh, in New Orleans. Uh, are they equally as uh, adept at, at sight reading and need little rehearsal? Well, we, we have pretty much the same time constraints uh, are here as there are there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I will um, say that I've spent, like many people, uh, we used to have to go out of town to do this sort of work. And some of that was, um, it took a while for the generation of classical musicians that weren't centered in recording towns like L.A., like London, mm-hmm. like um, New York. Uh, it took a while for, to get people into the orchestras here that didn't view that as a, you know, as, as a um, not as important a thing to be doing as playing a Beethoven symphony. Mm-hmm. You know, there was their important work. And then, yeah, we'll do that on the side. Well, when you have people with that attitude, um, you, you, that can be disappointing. They might be able to read great and play great. But just yesterday, we were recording a piece, some strings for these, these songs. And in one section, they just had to play whole notes, just long notes. Da, da, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And they played it. And I remember when we ran, you know, we read through it the first time. Um, I said, look, even those long notes, you've got to have intent to them. You know, they, they can't just sound like you're just playing a note. You have to, you have to be convict. you know, you have to have conviction on how you play that note. And I don't really know how you make the difference, whether it's the way, it's partly the way you attack the note, it's partly the way your vibrato is, and it's part, partly, again, just your intention so that you're, your your magnetic intention of what you're doing is transmitted into the note as it comes out, and just by telling them that the the, the next time they read through it, it was absolutely brilliant. So it can be done, and part of it is the players here. Um, I've spent the last twenty years really dedicated myself to, to working here as much as I could, and even when the budget didn't require me to hire you know, 20 players. I could have got away hiring five. I hired the 20 because we had to keep training and, and keep their chop, their studio chops up. It's a very mm-hmm. different thing playing a studio. And this generation of musicians that, that is populating our orchestras now, they love film music too. They love the same music we love, you know, that, that we might be, I might be older than them, but they came up at a time when there is not this huge separation that, you know, Beethoven's great and John Williams isn't. You know, yeah. they don't feel that way. So they love well, doing it. You know? Yeah. Well, I was going to play two uh, uh, two cues from two scores that you've done. Now, I am curious. Uh, uh, the uh, the two films we're going to play back to back are Cage No More and Hate Crime. Were were those yeah. by any chance recorded here locally? Oh yeah, everything okay. that I sent you of mine was recorded here. Okay, you know, for sure. Talk to us a little bit about the uh, the. I want to say I'm familiar with Hate Crime. I want to uh-huh. say that I've heard great things about that film yet it hasn't been seen by enough people but talk to us about those those two films just briefly if you would and tell us a little bit about what we can expect to hear 
Sure. Well, um, I'll start with Cage because that one I think came first. But Cage, Cage No More is a film by uh, Lisa Arnold, who is a writer, director, oh, okay. producer on the North Shore. You know, in Covington, lives right. in Covington. And I've worked on, scored three of her films and think the world of her. I think she's a, a wonderful filmmaker with, um, and a great collaborator. I have yes. enjoyed everything I've worked with on her, the process. She, um, this is a very dark film, you know, with some sunshine in it as well. But, you know, it's, it's a film that concerns the sex slave traffic, the trafficking that's going on in the world right now, uh, the selling of young women into bondage and sexual um, situations. Mm. And um, it was about a rescue. Um, it's a it's a it's a strong film. So that that this that was the first film I worked on with her um, uh, of hers that I worked on. And um, she had tempted the film, and if my memory serves me right, sent it to me, and she says, Jay, I just don't think this temp is working. She says, I love these tracks, and she sent me some you know, music from other films she loved. I took myself, I'll temp your score. Let me temp your film for you and see what you think, because we were just starting to work together. So I did, loved what I did, and of course, that gave me great insight as to what cues should musically be related to each other, how she felt about it. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote the score um, for her and then ultimately recorded it for her. Uh, and then Hate Crime is by another filmmaker, Stephen Esteb, who is, a, again, a, once again, a f- super talented writer. Uh, that film has, is, I think, is about to get out of the... Uh, it's been really winning all kinds of awards in the festival circuit world. Right. And I think, I think that one's about to, to break out as well. And that score, that is such an intense film and a beautiful film. Um, and I had Stephen, a great collaborator. And one of the times when I was hired, signed a deal, watched the film, started writing the music, and Stephen and I would talk about it. And I said, Stephen, what you want me to do the next step is x x is going to cost more money this much more money he said well how much more i said well i'll do you a budget and it wasn't nothing it was considerable Mm -hmm. you know and um steven went out and found the friggin money to do what he wanted me to do wow and that is that is so cool on an indie film level you know that the that the budget for the music went up. <laughs> it usually is yeah. going down, you know. Yeah. But Stephen had a vision for that film. He heard what I was writing, loved it, and I said, "This is what'll make it even more what you're loving." And he, of course, came to all the recording sessions you know, of the string. It was all it was hiring a bunch of string players, you know, the orchestra to come in and play a lot of the string stuff instead mm-hmm. of it being the samples and synthesize, you know, the mock-ups that you know, right. Fake instrument, not the fake, but you know the samples. Yeah, and um, he couldn't have been happier. I mean, he he is, is fantastic. So it's another dark film. Those are two dark films. That that yeah. film's of course about a horrible situation of uh, um, two families and you know a fellow coming to grips with who he really is and his one of his parents not accepting it. Yeah, and him ending up doing something horrible. So mm. I don't want to blow what it is. Let yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, film speak for itself but i think it is the one i'm thinking of yeah well let's listen to to, uh back to back Uh, these are two cues that uh that jay has written uh one for a movie called caged no more and the one that follows that will be hate crime
when I uh, when I saw your list, I memories were flooding me with uh, some of these titles that you chose, and one of them was uh, Field of Dreams. I loved that <laughs> loved that movie, uh, and you. Uh, uh, in fact, I would still get choked up with you know, hey, you want to play Catch Dad? You know, I mean, it's it just uh. it's just amazing. Uh, you chose a cue from there called Moonlight Graham. Uh, this was a score written yeah. by James Horner. Tell us a little bit about your uh, your thinking behind choosing that as one of your favorites. Well, um, first off, it's just one of those pieces of music, like all the music that's on my favorite list. I mean, one of the reasons it's there is the moment I heard it, it spoke to me. You know, it was just one of those things. As a piece of music, every one of the score pieces I picked, I... I now, maybe because I've seen it to picture all that emotion that the filmmaker put into it that is, you know, intermixed with the music is subconsciously triggering. But still, these are great, in my opinion, really great, interesting pieces of music. Mm -hmm. That piece has become one of the staples in my I teach one class a semester at Loyola University and one semester is film scoring. And it's one of the pieces I make every student uh, transcribe. Hmm. Um, because it has elements in it from um, what we call modal writing in some sections where there aren't chord changes. There's just using a scale in a certain kind of way that creates a certain very strong feeling. Uh, and then there's other sections where there, there are block, just chords, you know, clunk, clunk, clunk coming at you that are the most basic chords of all tonal music, but they sound so fresh and original. And then there's the whole synth pad, what I would call a synth pad in the background underneath the acoustic sounds of strings, piano. Uh, you have, uh, I think there's even flute, there's some woodwind in it. There's this synthesizer just playing this kind of cloud of transparent cloud of sound. And so that whole mixture, again, of artificial instruments with acoustic instruments. Um, creates such an, a, a, a wonderful texture uh, of sound. Um, and so it's, it, along with everything you know about the movie, just getting you on every level. And the Moonlight Graham's story in the movie is just so amazingly touching. How yeah. he makes that cho choice at the end, you know, to, to do what he did. And it just is, is, is beautiful. And that piece of music is just fantastic, I think. Always well, let's... Let's uh, let's let our viewers experience that too. Uh, if you haven't heard it before, you will absolutely love it. If you've seen the movie, then it will bring back a flood of memories for you. This is uh, from the film film uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, the cue is called Moonlight Graham, and it's written by James Horner.
Well, let's we're going to play two things back to back this time in the two very different genres. Uh, you had chosen uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the I guess the remake, uh, uh, yep. the main title from that, written by Danny Elfman, who is another very popular and uh, successful composer. And then, but you also uh, wanted to play a, a cue called Two Victory, which is uh, from the film Three Hundred. And yeah. you know, these are. I, I don't know if I've heard both of them yet, but I would guess probably two different genres, two different styles, things like that. Totally. Talk to us about totally. uh, about those two cues and what we can expect to hear. What was it that you were excited about with those? Well, again, on a generic level, then I'll get more specific about each one. But on a generic level, those are two composers that so freely um, and successfully integrate music of our time, of our, of our popular cultural time into the music into the film genre and i remember uh it was it was it was the second time i saw charlie and the chocolate factory in the in the movie theater with uh, i brought my son and the opening title you're going to hear it, it was the second time i was hearing it so you would have thought i knew it because you know those great movies like that opening titles there ain't no dialogue you know it is a piece of music and really cool imagery going by you and credit right. so you can really listen to it but about halfway through it, Frank, I realized that this orchestra that was playing had a melody being played in it, and the darn melody was being played by synthesizers. And I hadn't realized it. It was so perfectly integrated into the sound of the orchestra hmm. that I had missed the fact that Danny and his crew had done this amazing job of integrating, it almost sounded to me like analog synthesizers into the, the texture. And I thought how amazing that was, that it didn't sound like a synth plane. And then once I knew it, I began to appreciate now this cross timbre that you get between acoustic instruments, the way Danny Elfman's team, he, did, he does it, the way the, the acoustic instruments and the, and the uh, vibrancy of those sounds mix together. It's, it's, it's one that totally intrigued me. What, what killed me about it, Frank, was that I didn't realize it the first time I heard it. It just was so well done. I yeah. didn't even put it together. And that's all the, the result of that's all the result, I guess, of, of work in post and uh, the, the sound mixer. And I guess, right? Is that what? Yeah, the, his crew Excel... picking the right. Yeah, picking the right sounds. I mean, yeah. knowing how to do it. You know, Danny, well, you know, I mean, he, he came from the pop music world, had been in Oingo Boingo and was a very successful artist, you know, popular right. artist for writing songs and singing and guitaring and keyboarding. And he just he didn't separate all that. You know, so when okay. he got working, it's really interesting. I mean, on some level, Danny Elfman goes from being like my first score I remember of his was what? Pee Wee Herman movie. That might yeah. be the first score I remember of his. And that must have been done primarily out of the box. A lot of keyboard work, a lot of synth sounds, if my memory serves me. And he started there and then turned into one of the one composers who constantly, continually, always is using orchestra. You know, he went from being a keyboard guy and, and you know, popular cultural and pop music instruments into one of the great orchestral writers in, in film. It's really an interesting transformation, you know, that okay. he was able to put himself through. The and 300... I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, I had cut you off talking about 300. Go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. Well, that one, um, I remember going to that movie, and it was done in that kind of um, 
what do they call them, graphic novel style. I think it was based on a graphic novel. You know, mm-hmm. that adult cartoons, I call, adult comic books, right? Mm-hmm. When I first heard that phrase, I thought it was probably pornography or something. <laughs> then I, I realized, oh, no, it's just adult comic books. Um, so it was very, um, I mean, I, I just, I fell in love with it. I, I, I love the movie. Love it, love it, love it. And I'm a pacifist, and I still love it. It kind of kicks me, <laughs> thrills me that Patton, these movies about these Black Hawk Down and the 300, three of my favorite movies, uh, all about war and killing. And um, I'm a pacifist. I don't even understand myself sometimes. But that score, what really struck me, and the reason I wanted to throw it in was um, it's almost like heavy metal music into film. It's not almost like me, it is. You know, I, I I don't know all the sub genres of heavy metal music, but uh, rhythms that I mean, it's a lot of texture of noise—not noise, but of sound coming at you. Right. But inside of this texture, you'll hear these ta ta these rhythms of where the attacks are, and those rhythms are you know like out of rock music, you know, and okay. it's actually very to me. It was incredibly exciting to hear that music in a film. I loved okay. it. Well, let's uh, let's let our yeah, let's let our listeners hear it for themselves. Back to back, we're going to play the main title from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, and then uh, uh, a cue called "To Victory" from the film Three Hundred. Sit back and have a listen. Thank you. 
You've mentioned this name a couple of times, and I would agree that this is one of one of my favorite cues by uh, by this composer. That being uh, from the film E.T. The Flying Theme, uh, written by John Williams. Is there uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking on including that amongst your favorites? Well, um, yeah, uh, um, that's a cue uh, and a melody that is uh, obviously beloved everywhere. I mean, nobody, I don't know anyone that doesn't kind of know that theme. You know, yeah, you're right. You hear it and you know instantly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that movie was so brilliantly done. And I remember my religious friends found like 73 um, um, allusions to the story of Jesus Christ in it, his the death, huh. the rebirth, you know, they saw all kinds of content that spoke to them in a very symbolic way of, mm-hmm. of their journey, you know. So, so any movie, right, that acts as a mirror is going to be successful. And that movie for people, for many people I knew, acted as a mirror. They just saw in it those things that were important to them. Right. And that just spoke to, obviously, Steven Spielberg's amazing brilliance of, of capturing that. But that cue... The reason I, I, besides the brilliant piece of music it is, one of the things about it, I use, that's another one I use in my class. And very often I make the class, it's a semester-long project, to watch E.T. as many times as they can with that cue in their head. And what I tell them to do, you watch the movie, and every time you hear any type of reference to anything that reminds you of that cue, you stop the uh, playback, you write down where in the movie you are, what you heard, what instruments played it, etc. And how whatever he, whatever little phrase or little thing he did with it, what kind of mood it's setting. And um, the reason I do that is I found somewhere around 70 plus references to that theme before that theme is heard in the movie as the hmm. theme. When E.T. at the very beginning is rumbling around, and they have the adults who you never get to see, right? I mean, at, at the beginning, you just see their feet, you know, how right. Spielberg will do that. The adults are um, walking in the woods trying to see what they're tr- trying to find him. You hear these low bassoons and harps. These, you hear this reference to that theme, if you listen carefully for it, all throughout it. So my point is, to my students, by the time Steven Spielberg... Excuse me, John Williams hits you in full force with that theme and it's full glory when the bikes bikes tape off flying. It's kind of when it really happens in its most big way. Right. And they fly over the people. It seems so natural. And what's cool about that is for a minute, for just a minute, you sort of forget that it's extraordinary what's happening. It doesn't surprise you that the kids in ET are flying and then all of a sudden when the kids start laughing and looking down, you, you get the full impact of the mystery of what's going on. And I just think that John Williams and that score with that piece of music was able to, to bring us in deeper and deeper into that movie by using that as an overriding melodic, intervallic. He uses little intervals from it all throughout the score so that when it comes, it just it feels like a, um, a natural... And uh, you, you're along for the ride, so to speak. Yeah, pardon all those puns, but you're yeah, I don't know. I love your passion for for explaining this, and it and it, yeah, I think it shows. This is from a non-musical person. Uh, I think it shows that it, there's 
there's more to film scoring than just you know writing a bunch of uh, music to pictures that you see on the screen. It, it seems to me, I'm sure that was done deliberately to plant seeds oh, yeah. for that theme throughout the film and to build up to that crescendo when, when the, with the bike ride, the flying bikes. Uh, I mean, very tact, you know, very uh, just done on purpose. I don't know how else to say it, but yeah. I, you know, which is what you basically have said, and that you'll find that in a lot of scores. It's um, uh, it's a great way to a great way to describe it, and I you know I love your passion for it. But let's uh, let's hear it for ourselves again. It's something very familiar, I'm sure, to most of our listening audience. This is uh, from the film E.T. It's called uh, the Flying Theme, written by John Williams.
made reference to it a couple of times, but I am curious, uh, very briefly, if you could give me a sense uh, how the business of scoring has changed over your career, because I suspect it has changed in many ways, uh, you know, particularly over this time period, the last 30 years or so. Yeah, but, um, you know, just talking about the, you know, the process, you know, it used to be that a client, whether it was a film or a commercial or a doc, whatever it was, whatever you were writing, whatever form of media you were writing to at the time, the producer, director, whoever's the decision maker, and that's all part of the job of a composer is to figure out who's the decision maker, who's Mm -hmm. the person that's going to say, that works, that doesn't. You know, mostly it's the director in film because they're the, you know, they usually control the creative side, but not always. And very often by the time you get to the end of a project, there's a lot of passion. And a lot of times the patience for each other has worn thin. And so it mm. becomes, we, we can be often as much psychiatrists as we can be composers trying to maintain um, and get through, you know, get this, get the help, get the project to the, the finishing line, which is where we were really brought in to finish it, to help finish it, you know? And, um, but it used to be whoever that decision maker was would come in and I would sit at a piano and play them ideas as bad as I play, but clunk through them and go, (laughs) this melody will be for that. And, and I swear it'll be violins and flutes and I'm going to put drums playing this part or whatever. And you would describe it. And, uh, there was a lot of, I'm sure trepidation going into the studio because that's where all other than what they're paying you, all the money's being spent in that studio. And um, they wouldn't really know what it's going to sound like till they're sitting in that studio and hear it. And if they want changes, it's expensive. Yeah. It's the time. You can't just take, you know, musicians don't just punch out. You've booked them, you know. So they're either going to have to come back and finish something else or you're going to, if it's a multi-day session, you're going to be up all night fixing things that the director wanted fixed. Our producer want to fix and nowadays you know it's, it's turned into we have to sit down and when we write something we do as realistic a mock-up we call them of the music as we can using all of our electronic computer equipment so that you know i own probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of sample we call sample libraries and synthesizers that that are Someone took the trouble to have a violin play every note in 20 different ways and build me a patch. Wow. So when I play a keyboard, it sounds like a violin playing what I'm playing. Now, as I always tell my students, I tell people, my library can only do about, if, if a real violin can do 100 different things to a sound, you know, the kind of vibrato, the kind of attack, the kind mm-hmm. of slurs, all that is a hundred. <clears throat> make up a number. It's more than this. But let's say a hundred. A sample library can do ten. So when you write for a sample library, if you want it to sound real, you limit yourself to what it does well. And the beauty of this is, is that people like my mock-up, usually they're ecstatic when they hear the real players play it. Because then all of a sudden, all those new subtleties come out. But People come to my studio and they hear a realistic mock-up of their piece. And they can sit there and say to me, you know what, Jay, that instrument right there playing the melody, I don't like the way it sounds. Oh, you don't like the oboe there? No. Well, here, let me click, click, listen to it on a flute. And you Mm -hmm. can make a few changes, click, clicks, 10 seconds here on a flute. Oh, well, let's see what a trumpet sounds like. 
Yeah, that's and a then huge they'll say, change. That's what I like. That's what yeah. I like right there. And so when you go into the studio on a lot of films, there's never any changes. I mean, it's it's the budgets have gotten to where you have to give them something and then you go in the studio and it's generally, I shouldn't say never any changes. Generally it's a listening session for them. Well, now fortunately it just so happens that we happen to have Uh, an example of this, of of, uh, doing a mock-up versus a final. I don't know how that worked out. Um, (laughs) You you, you did a film, uh, uh, a fairly recent one called last laugh. I believe that was that Netflix or Amazon. I can't remember. Netflix. Yeah. Netflix. It's, being very successful in that. Yeah, with uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus and Chevy Chase. And what you've done is you've provided for us um, a, uh, a mock-up of a theme that you had written for the, for the film, and you described it perfectly. And then immediately after that, we're going to play what ended up being the, the final version of it with the, uh, with the real orchestra. And you'll hear that it's surprisingly close, but, but as you mentioned, the subtleties come out in the final version that really give it the punch that it needs. So, yeah, let's um, let's let's listen to this example that uh, that Jay just described of putting together a mock-up that is used for kind of like approval purposes versus what the final product ended up being. This is from the film Last Laugh, and it's written by our guest Jay.
you have a uh, you also have a new film that'll be coming out soon uh that's at least going to be released i guess on video de- on demand uh that actually believe it or not i had a little part in it i did some background work on that on that film so i've been anxious to see it uh it's called heart baby yeah. uh, tell tell us a little bit about your work on that because we are going to play a cue from that and uh just you know just kind of give us a little bit of background on it i guess and well heart baby is uh a film that has been very successfully, like hate crime, making the rounds in the film festival world. Independent filmmakers, really, it's a struggle, right? We all know it in the industry, how hard it is to get your film put out there and how hard these filmmakers work. They they spend years on these projects, right, Frank? Running around festivals, trying to get people to respond to it so they can get broader distribution and... I just admire these filmmakers of the world. And Angela Shelton, the director and writer of that project, is uh, a model of that hard work and dedication. She made this film, and I'm not going to talk much about the plot because it is, it is, you don't, there's, there's spoilers in there. You know, you don't right. want to get that out. Um, and I was originally hired on the film. There's a lot of songs in the film, original songs in the film that. One of the people the film was about, Andy Dixon, wrote. And they were shooting the film in Louisiana, and they needed someone at first. They had a composer already on the project picked, and they needed a composer to produce the songs. So they came at my studio, Angela and Kim Barnyard, the producer, and hired me to do that. And it's one of those things where uh, I did the sessions, five or six songs, and the actor... Um, came in to sing them, and uh, Andy, the guy who had, who's the movie, one of the two main characters of the movie, came, the real Andy came, to the session, and hmm. I, I didn't realize how impactful it was on him until um, that's, those recording sessions were, because at the final, um, the final party, you know, the goodbye, you know, they always do right, the rap, the rap party. party, yeah. I go to the rap party, you know, my job's over and done, and, and they had shot all the scenes with the music because all the songs are in the film, and they were shooting them as if they were performing them live. Mm. And um, I was saying, Andy, look, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I hope to see you again. And he, I remember him just saying, well, Bob, if anything to do with it, you'll be seeing me again. And I said, oh, great. Not really mm-hmm. catching the subtext, but apparently Andy, I had made a deep impression on him. We were friends to this day. Whenever I go to Nashville, uh, I, I try to visit him. Right. He and his wife, they do great work. And uh, Andy had been pushed, told the director, I think you should get Jay to score this film. He understands it. He had been impressed by what how I had run the session and my appreciation for the story and what it was really about. He thought I had really gotten it. And so, I don't know, a couple, three months after they wrapped and left, I got a phone call and was pulled in to score the film and could have oh, been happier. Excellent. Yeah. It's a beautiful, I mean, I just think it's a remarkable film. Um, I'm I'm working on another one of her films now, um, uh, Angela's films now. So we've become a partner. You know, she's she's a collaborators. Right. She's, she's called me in for a second one. So that that of course is always thrilling to know that they we work well together. And this film was another one where um, I was giving the kind of resource I needed to do for an independent film. I mean, it wasn't like these Warner Brother these major studio films right. where there's huge budgets. But um, she understood I needed certain musicians and certain things and wanted it. Even at the end, I remember 
I had used the sample library of a choir, just doing some pad, just doing some choir, you know, ethereal sounds, ooh and an I. And I remember she called me and said, wouldn't you just love for that to be a real choir? I said, oh, yeah, Angela, but that's going to cost blah, blah. And she hung up and said, I'm putting it on my credit card. Go do it. <laughs> so Aww. I was, I mean, that's the kind of passion and kind of independent filmmaking that just blows me away is yeah. that is that she did it. and of course i said i tell you what i'm going to do i'll write it i'll get the choir but you're not paying me a penny i'll do it for free we'll just just call the cost i was so inspired by what she had done you know yeah. that i was just willing to spend another three or four days and work on it so um but those are the Excellent type of relationships story. that just you just love about i mean i love about indie filmmaking it's just that kind of that kind that of spirit. aspect to it yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, yeah. let's let's have a listen. There's a short cue from the uh, film The Heart Baby that was uh, written by our guest, and this will be available on video on demand sometime in June, I want to say. Uh, I'll, I'll try to post it on my Facebook page when I've got more definite information, but let's, uh, let's sit back and have a listen to this. So, Jay, you've already kind of mentioned it, but uh, maybe anything else that uh, that you've got going in your future? What's uh, what's going to be happening here in the next couple of months, years, or anything that you can share with us at this point? Sure. I am. Uh, I'm just I just downloaded this morning, just getting started on um, a Tyler Perry film. Um, oh, OK. Uh, one of his scoring it. And um, that'll be followed by uh, a dear friend of mine here in town. Uh, Jason Barry, who does some remarkable documentaries, exposing some amazing things and getting ready. Uh, we I go Monday to take a look at where they are. That'll come next. And then later in the summer, um, there's a film. Actually, as I appreciated, David Lynch is producing it, but it's being d- written and directed and shot in the Republic of Georgia. Hmm. But, but starring American uh, actors, you know, going over there. Um, I'm going to be scoring that one. I just signed on to do that one. Congratulations. Um, so those are, those are the next little batch of, you know, the, I'm finishing up Angela's film, her new film, the Eagle and the Albatross. It's called, mm-hmm. it's a golf comedy. I'm a golfer. So I was oh, yeah, thrilled I to get into that. Well, how oh, can we not be? <laughs> Such a great sport. Oh. Um, and then, uh, the Tyler film and then, um, 
um, you know, Tyler Perry's film, and then the the film for uh, that'll be coming uh, probably August, right after this one. You know, that'll become like August September. You um, are one. On that one. Yeah, you are one busy dude. That's that's great, and uh-huh. congratulations. Listen, I thank you, Jay. I I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for for joining us. I uh, I I loved your passion for the cues that you chose and the insights that you're able to uh, to give us today about the the world of film scoring can't can't thank you enough i i hope you've enjoyed it very much frank so so very much so i i i appreciate what you're doing i think that that it's so nice to see the the mystery surrounding uh post-production and film you know slowly getting peeled away so people can understand what it's all it's what it's all about yeah and uh, hey look you know what you never know if you're out there alan someone wants to meet you <laughs> so uh you never know maybe maybe mr Silvestri will somehow get that notice so listen, thanks so. thanks again jay we we appreciate your spending time with us today uh, that's going to do it for this episode of uh, what's the score i hope you've enjoyed it and thank you for joining us there's only one thing left to say and that is this my name is frank wilson my time is up i thank you for yours Thanks for listening to What's the Score.